and welcome to season two of the Sifted podcast being recorded from the Dream Factory in Shoreditch. Today we're going to be talking about the situation in Ukraine because there frankly isn't much of another story going on at the moment. But first we will introduce ourselves and explain a little bit about how this new podcast is going to work. I'm Eleanor. I'm Sifted's deputy editor. I've been here for a little bit less than a year, but it feels like five years. A long time. A long time. Um, I work kind of across the business, help us figure out what stories to cover. I was at a VC fund before this, and then I was also in journalism before this. So this is kind of like perfect melding of my interest in startups, tech, VC, and also journalism. And I'm Amy. I'm Sifted's new editor and first employee. I run the Sifted team along with Eleanor and I now host with Eleanor the Sifted podcast. For anyone who doesn't know much about Sifted, we are a publication headquartered in London, which reports on Europe's startup and investment ecosystem. I don't know how many of you listening today were listening for season one, but for this season, we're going to be doing something just a little bit different. So we're going to be kind of giving a peek into the Sifted newsroom, how we report stories, how our journalists get scoops and, and research, everything that we cover. And then we're also going to be diving every week into the top stories, sharing some insights from the reporters, speaking directly to them, and potentially talking to other people in the ecosystem about those stories. And in normal weeks, we'd be discussing our bread and butter topics like deep tech breakthroughs, cultural scandals at some of the best known startups, insights from startup operators. But this hasn't been a typical week for anyone. So we're going to be doing something a bit different. So today we're really going to be focusing on our coverage on the events in Ukraine, which I feel like has been really our main focus for like the last week. And we're going to be speaking to some people on the ground, hearing about how businesses are dealing with this, what's the role tech is playing, and some initiatives that people have rolled out to support. So Amy, what's been, just before we get into that, like how has it been this week? Obviously, as you said, it's not been a normal week. um, And I think it's been a really tough emotional week for a lot of people. What has it been like for you leading the team, figuring out what we're covering? Tell me about that. I guess the kind of news we normally cover at Sifted is not of this variety. And it's been really great to see how all of the team has really wanted to contribute and report on this. We've had loads of ideas. We've written about hackathons. We've looked at the financial angle. We did a Q&A with a guy who set up a kind of resource bank for people leading teams in Ukraine and elsewhere for how people teams and HR leaders can help their employees. So we've kind of looked at this from lots of different angles and we'll keep doing so so please share anyone listening share any ideas of stories you'd like us to report on this subject yeah I think it's been really incredible how many people have just reached out to us cold you know I feel like we've gotten so much inbound from people that are like I'm setting this initiative up you know and I mean that both people in the tech industry in Ukraine and outside in Europe were saying I'm doing this initiative or we're helping um, Ukrainian tech employees relocate and this is what we're doing so it's been like really amazing kind of outpouring of support. Yeah, and I want to say a special thanks to a woman called Ira who works for Tech Ukraine, who's been emailing us multiple times a day, letting us know how she's doing. She's in Kyiv, putting the call out to founders and people who work in tech in Ukraine and kind of getting updates from them and telling us how it is 
on the ground. You know, she she literally has seen apartment blocks bombed from her window and she's still there and she's still emailing us and kind of asking us to keep doing this. So, yeah, thank you, Ira. So just a few minutes ago, we spoke to Ivan Babachuk, who's the board chairman of the Lviv IT cluster and the VP of engineering at a tech company called EduNav. And he's currently there in Lviv in Ukraine. Ivan, thank you so much for making time for us today. How are you doing? Personally, I'm doing completely fine on a physical level, but obviously on an emotional level, we're all worried. So not that fine. However, we're staying strong. And, and what's the situation in the city at the moment? Yeah, well, the city of Lviv is the western city of Ukraine. We are near to the Polish border. And at the moment, this region uh, is assumed as a safe one. So a lot of refugees are coming from eastern Ukraine, from Kyiv, from south, from Odessa, and settling down in, in Lviv, uh, either kind of temporarily just to wait to see what how that will be, or just having that a stop short stop in the city and then moving towards uh, Poland or uh, Slovak Republic. And and what have you been spending the past few days doing? What What is life there like at the moment? I'd say a lot of people who are involved in any type of IT software development businesses, the main priority for them is to continue doing what they were doing before, because this industry, first of all, the industry is a key for the country. It, at this time, probably that's the only one that generates revenue, import revenue for the country, which is also super important now. So our main goal is just to continue to support our companies, our businesses, and make sure we still could provide services for the customers. So we worked all the time in that mood, right? But now we are spending more time just to guarantee the contingency of the business and, and support of, 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 of the operation. Uh, but I'm quite sure, I, I can say about myself, but I'm quite sure it's generally around the people, everybody I know, they do much more outside of their day-to-day job and their business by helping those people who are moving over here, helping with some logistics, volunteering, uh, distributing aid, uh, whatever they can. So we sleep very little and we do a lot. I'm quite sure that will be continue uh, in that mood. It, for quite a while. And and how are you caring for your team? How is your team doing at Edunav? Are you having like daily check-ins? How does that go? Yeah, so we are in constant contact with uh, with pretty much everyone from the team. We moved our uh, engineers from Kyiv and Odessa to Lviv to be in a safe location. Some of them uh, moved to European countries uh, to support operation from there. So we are on a daily check-ins from morning till very night. Uh, we know who is doing what, where. Uh, we stay connected. We help families for, to, to those, uh, our teammates who moved somewhere. So yeah, for now, for every business, it's super important to communicate internally and be super connected to everyone. I had another question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about how what it's like running a business when you know you're dealing with you're watching a refugee crisis unfold with the war? What is it like emotionally to to be in the middle of that? Yeah, obviously uh, that won't be true if I'd say that productivity is 100% that it was before or we just absolutely not distracted from the business. It's it, it's just not true. So we have split screen, everyone just following the news and listening what's going on. 
uh, and that is a destruction. And obviously, emotionally, it's also not that easy to to see those people that are crying and moving through the country towards western side. But the good, actually, the humor is helping a lot. There is absolutely separate trend that's happening now in Ukraine. A lot of new generated humor, like war-related humor in social media and just spreading across people. Because even in a tough situation, when you laugh a little bit, it makes everything much easier around. So uh, that helps. Can you give us an example of some of that humor? Uh, So, for example... Teachers from the school, uh, now they are sending messages to pupils uh, with description why it's important to learn physics, because you can calculate trajectory of uh, of artillery, right? Uh, Why it's important to learn geography, because you will know where every city and village in Ukraine is located. Why it's important to learn chemistry, because you can prepare the Molotov cocktail if you need to, so and so and so. So that's that's one of the examples. I've been... uh... I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but I think it's been quite amazing how various Ukrainian politicians have been tweeting the big tech companies and tweeting people like Elon Musk and asking them to do things. And then they're actually doing them. It's quite amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The world is reacting, but there is no other way for the world community, right? Because it's not a local war any longer. So they they should be ready to help. And they really do. So we really appreciate it. And what do you, I guess, what's kind of a message you'd like to give to investors or clients or members of the tech community in the rest of Europe or the rest of the world? How, how can they help or support in any way? Uh, I, I think the main help and support from them will be just trust in us, trust in, in what we are saying. We are doing everything to continue our business and operation, and that's really happening here on the field. So don't be afraid. Companies continue to produce the value for all the high-tech industry around the world. So just be confident we'll be continuing doing that. That's our focus. Thank you, even for speaking to us and making time for this podcast. So now on to the piece that Eleanor, you've been working on this week. Tell us a bit about that. So this week I worked on a piece about the connections between European VCs and Russia. So obviously VCs are funding the startups, but VCs are also funded by other people, right? And that's kind of the angle that we looked about at. Um, Freya, the other reporter, and I looked at when we were thinking about potential ties there. So we looked into these funders of funders, otherwise known as LPs or limited partners, how many or what percentage of those limited partners are from Russia, we looked at. And I think the point is to say, you know, it's not to say that Russian money is necessarily bad, but given the sanctions and, for example, banks being cut out of the SWIFT banking system or the collapse of the ruble, even if you are a non-sanctioned Russian investor, it's going to be more difficult to transfer any money out of the country or for an investor outside of Russia to potentially transfer returns to you. Yeah, I thought that was the, the most interesting bit about your reporting for me was that it's not just the VCs with sanctioned funders, because we can naturally find that many who had sanctioned money. But even those who've taken money from 
yeah, wealthy individuals or big corporates in Russia could potentially be impacted down the line. And you spoke to some lawyers. What did they say? What, what could those potential impacts be? Yeah, so mainly it's it's kind of two channels if you were a non-sanctioned Russian investor based in Russia and investing in VCs in Europe. So first, you know, some banks as part of sanctions um, imposed by countries on Russia, some banks have been cut out of the SWIFT banking system, which would make it harder for you to, for example, send a banking a bank transfer. So if the VC said, okay, you know, it's time for you to, we're doing a capital call, we're we need your money for the funds so we can invest it. It would be potentially difficult for a Russian investor to do that. The other way that the lawyers mentioned it could be difficult is just, you know, if you are a Russian investor, you have your assets denominated in rubles. The value of the ruble has you know, basically collapsed against major currencies like the dollar and the pound. Then, you know, all of a sudden, that money that you owe to the VC for investing is going to be a lot more in terms of rubles than it was at the beginning. And how did you go on this hunt? How did you figure out? Because that's the thing about LPs, right? They're often very secretive individuals all the time, not just in this situation. Whenever we write about VCs raising new funds, they're often very cagey about who's actually given them money. We get lists of institutional investors and pension funds, but they won't give us names. So how did you figure out who actually has Russian money? So I think the first thing to just say is that obviously VCs are not, from a regulatory perspective, not mandated to say who LPs are. And LPs also, you know, this is a question that I often asked when I was in my VC job is like, okay, why do LPs not want to talk about it themselves, right? It's, it could be really great if they were in a really good VC fund. But the reason that I was always given was LPs don't want to talk about it because then they'll have other VC funds trying to come to them for money and that's annoying and they don't want to deal with that. So they don't talk about it. So it was, it was extremely difficult to try and, and find where these potential LPs would be. I had, you know, a couple of sources who kind of gave me hints about uh, VC funds that might have funding, but obviously there are no, you know, like databases or, or places like that that we could go to. And there's no overall data either about what percentage of funds in European VCs are from Russia. So Invest Europe, which is basically the industry body for PE and VC in Europe, told us that it's probably less than 2%. But also, you know, you sometimes it's really difficult to know where the source of the funds is coming from, right? It could be a family office and there could be someone behind that family office, right, who is is from a country that the VC fund doesn't know about. So it's it's extremely difficult. For our final part of today's episode, we're speaking to Aina Kelly and Steph Bailey, two of our colleagues at Sifted, who've been reporting on initiatives that have been launched in the past week, including a hackathon, but also other initiatives, uh, employing tech workers and hosting refugees from Ukraine in Airbnb type apartments, about those stories that they've been reporting on. So now let's bring on Aina and Steph. So, Aina, you spent some time talking to Georgian hackers this week, which I imagine is not exactly what you expected you'd be doing when you began working at Sifted. How did that come about? Yeah. So when you asked me to do this story on 
hacking in Ukraine. My initial thought was crap, you know, I should have spent more time sourcing up in, in the Ukrainian underbelly. But actually, at the moment, these hackers are not too hard to find. They are on mainstream sites like Twitter, which is where I found a lot of hackers, actually. And yeah, the Georgian Hacker Society, they are loosely affiliated to the International Anonymous Group, you know, the guys who wear the Guido Fox masks. They're primarily five individuals, they claim. And these five individuals go by the names Kryptonite, Sphinx, Dark Omicron, Dino, and Little Mads. They are meeting on the messaging hub Discords, and they're trying to coordinate attacks on Russian government websites, Russian bank websites, Russian companies. So who's behind all of these hacking, I guess, alliances that are forming? And what and what are they actually doing? Do you know any more about, you mentioned, you know, they're trying to get Russian banks and things. What What is the day in the life of a pro-Ukraine hacker right now look like? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that the Ukrainian vice prime minister, he made the call to all these hackers out there around the world. He made the call for them to enlist in this, what he's calling an IT army. And a day in the life, well, I was speaking to this 20-year-old Ukrainian yesterday, and he's actually helping others pull off some of these cyber attacks. And he's only 20. His life has changed a lot in the last seven days. He said his aunt's house has been destroyed He's seen streets destroyed. And at the same time, he feels very passionate. He feels like he's really in a, in a fight and he feels that's, yeah, this is his duty now and this is what he should be doing. So, Aina, do we really have a sense of how much impact these hackers are having? And is it actually not irrelevant, but, you know, is an important part of what they're doing actually this sense of people coming together from all over the world? uniting against Russia and actually the kind of morale boost that that brings is maybe not as impactful, but that means something as well as, you know, if these initiatives are actually taking down banks or websites in Russia. Yeah, so the impact, it's pretty hard to gauge the impact so far, but definitely it is a rallying point for Ukrainians at the moment. And particularly Ukrainian expats, there's a lot of Ukrainian expats in London and this is a way for them to get involved in, in the war efforts from abroad, basically. And we were speaking to a couple of experts yesterday, and we spoke to Alp uh, Toker. He's a director of NetBlocks, which is a watchdog on cybersecurity. And he said, yeah, this is, this is a major blow for Russia. This is a perception game as well. And in the public eye, we, we see these Russian institutions being vulnerable to attacks. So it is a morale booster. And in the very least, it will cause annoyance and frustration, is what uh, Tim Stevens, director of the Cybersecurity Research Group at King's College of London, told us. And Steph, obviously, it's, it's like physically dangerous for hackers who are still in Kyiv or other cities in Ukraine. But are, are there any other risks that these hackers are taking? Yeah, um, I spoke to a number of cybersecurity experts and they were all kind of quite careful to warn people who are getting involved in stuff like this. There's a number of risks from sort of international law becoming a target for retaliation um, or even just attacking the wrong infrastructure. It's obviously incredibly complicated to pull off a campaign like this. And if you're doing it as a volunteer, you need to try and try and stay safe. 
And Steph, you've been gathering, haven't you, a list of kind of initiatives that are springing up all over Europe to support people in Ukraine and Ukrainian tech workers. What are some of the things that you've, you know, seen people organising and creating? Yeah, so there's a number of initiatives that we've seen from the tech community. There's one called Tech to the Rescue, which is they formed hashtag tech for Ukraine, which matches nonprofits with tech companies. And they told me today that they've had 350 companies join and they're working on projects such as building a database of humanitarian aid from NGOs, a Ukrainian map of Poland to display different kinds of support, a platform ordering medical supplies, one even supporting pets. They've also got 20 companies working to launch SOS UA, which is a platform a little like Airbnb that aims to match refugees from Ukraine with accommodation providers. So that's one of them. And there's also a Ukraine global task force, which was launched by a Google engineer based in Germany. And they have a number of goals, but one of them is to develop a mobile app that will provide Ukrainians with digital solutions. There's also HR for Ukraine, which is a collection of HR resources. So we've seen a number of different initiatives pop up. Thanks, Aina and Steph, for speaking to us. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in Ukraine and find our latest coverage from opinion pieces to lists of resources, please read us at sifted.eu. You can also sign up to our various newsletters to get our latest stories and follow us on Twitter at sifted.eu. We'd also love to hear what you think about our new format for the podcast. So you can add us on Twitter or email us at hello at sifted.eu. And we look forward to everyone joining us next week for episode two. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you.